Hello, and welcome to the Science in the City podcast, your gateway to the New York Academy of Sciences. I'm your host, Tamara Johnson. Are you sleepy right now? Odds are high that the answer is yes. According to the National Institutes for Health, 40 million Americans per year suffer from chronic sleep disorders, and another 20 million suffer from less frequent, but still frustrating, problems with sleep. For a lot of us, sleep deprivation, whether from medical conditions or simply a lack of time, is really a serious issue for at least part of our lives. And um, guys, no pressure, but sleep is really important. It really impacts literally every moment of your day, um, from how you feel to how your body is working to what kind of decisions you make. Um, and that's one thing I was struck by when I started doing the book. Uh, you always kind of think of sleep as like this absence from life. You know, it's this third that you don't want to think about. You're going to turn your body off and, and go from there. And I realized going through the research, no matter what you're doing, how you feel, how your health, anything, um, how, you, how you kind of go about your day, it really is a function of how you sleep. That was David Randall, author of a book called Dreamland, Adventures in the Strange Science of Sleep. We'll be hearing more from him, along with scientists Matthew Wilson and Aaron Wansley, who study the relationship between experience, dreams, and memory. Doctors Wilson and Wansley were panelists at an event hosted by Science in the City in collaboration with the fifth annual Imagine Science Film Festival, which looked at sleep from scientific and artistic perspectives. For more great science events, check out our website, scienceinthecity.org. Now, first up, we have David Randall. What motivated you to undertake a book about sleep? Uh, you did say the topic almost literally hit me in the face. Um, I started sleepwalking um, a couple years ago, and I ran into one of my hallway walls. Um, so I woke up on my back, you know, bad pain in my knee, and quickly figured out what happened. And I had long been a sleep talker, but this was the first time I became mobile. Um, so I went to my doctor and said, you know, this is what I'm doing. I spent a night in sleep lab, came back, he said, okay, it's clear you're not having seizures. It's clear you don't have any serious sleep disorder. Um, so beyond that, I don't really know what to tell you. Um, you know, I have to be honest, we don't know that much about sleep. Um, so it almost felt like I had sleepwalked past the medical frontier. You know, I was beyond help. Uh, so I decided, you know, as a journalist, I, you know, not knowing is almost the worst thing I can think of. Um, I can't handle this, oh, we don't know, and then leave it at that. Um, so I decided I was going to research everything I could about it. The relation between science and sleep turns out to be a bit complicated. Technology that most of us probably completely take for granted, light bulbs, actually totally changed the way we pattern our sleep. One of the biggest things at the light bulb is that, you know, our brains are built for a world where the sun pretty much runs the show. It had been for, for millions of years. Um, it's only in the last 100, 150 years where we've able, been able to change that. Um, research shows that, you know, if you sequester somebody away from electric lights, their sleeping pattern is almost completely different than how we think we're supposed to sleep. Um, if, you know, in, in these, these studies, basically someone falls asleep not long after the sun goes down. So maybe 7 o'clock if it's in the winter or, or 10 o'clock in the summer. Um, then they wake up shortly after midnight, maybe 1 or 2. And they stay awake for about an hour. And then they go back to sleep. And historical research shows that this is something that you expected. You know, and the Canterbury Tales is a reference to this. And 16th century French physician manuals, there's references to this first and second sleep. And also this time is a time actually feels really good. Um, in studies, people say that, you know, they felt like they were almost in a day spa. It was really relaxing. It was a time for themselves, and they, and they really enjoyed it. And it wasn't just 
you know, they had to sleep and so they were convincing themselves they felt great. Researchers, you know, drew their blood and found that there were higher levels of prolactin, a hormone that makes you basically feel content. It's the same hormone that goes through chickens when they're sitting on their eggs in a, in a contented haze. Um, so it's really with electric lights, your brain interprets that as sunlight and then interprets that, then says, basically, you know, I need to stay awake longer. Um, so it's, this never happened before with candlelight because it just wasn't bright enough. It has to be over, you know, basically 100 watts. Um, it's, it's on the lumen scale, but basically a 100 light, light bulb will make you, make it harder for you to fall asleep. And it's not only light bulb, it's, you know, your iPad that it, your brain interprets that as sunlight and says, hey, stay awake longer so you don't fall asleep as, as easily. Partly a consequence of the industrial work ethic facilitated by continuous access to lit conditions, there wasn't much regard for sleep following the Industrial Revolution, and not much study was done on the subject for a long time. Now, however, scientists are beginning to understand its crucial role in cognitive and physical health. You know, for a long time, sleep was almost forgotten by science. You know, a lot of doctors thought as soon as a patient fell asleep, then their responsibility was over. You know, nothing could be happening in your brain that, that mattered in any way. But now we know that so many things happen. That that's how you process information in many ways. And dreaming is one way that we process information. Um, so, you know, your dreams seem like they're so random. But it basically is, you know, your brain taking all the information you learned that day and comparing it to what you already knew. So it's almost like you're defragmenting your computer. Um, so you find these new connections, then you can wake up and find you have better ideas or you see things in a new way and you have just a better insight. Um, so we, we, we know what it does for us so we can focus on it. We can get the benefits of it. Um, sleep is also an important part of um, recovery, you know, not just mental, obviously, but, but physically, too. So the sports. Um, I talked with major league baseball coaches, and especially with pitchers. They want them to sleep before they play game. And then also that we know so, many, so much more about all the sleep disorders, so we can treat them. Um, you know, one particularly kind of scary one is uh, REM sleep behavior disorder. So when you're in REM sleep, rapid eye movement sleep, your body naturally paralyzes itself, or it's supposed to, so you don't act out your dreams. This doesn't happen for some people. So they can literally, um, you know, be asleep and run into traffic or jump out of a window um, or, you know, put their loved ones in a headlock because they're acting out their dreams. Um, now we know that that happens. You know, you're not possessed. <laughs> There's not all these scary things, um, and you can get treatment. Hopefully, you don't need to fear for your physical safety when you nod off. But there are a ton of us who, in a less frightening way, still don't easily relate to sleep. Last year, Americans filled more than 60 million prescriptions for sleep aids. The mechanism by which these pills work might surprise you. So most people don't realize that you know, the most popular sleeping aids, you know, um, Ambien, Lunesta, the way these really work is that they interfere with your brain's ability to form short-term memories. So say you, you take it at 10 o'clock at night, you wake up at 6, you don't remember anything. So you think, I was sleeping perfectly this whole time, you know, eight hours sleep, that's great. Um, but you could have been tossing and turning just as much. Your brain just simply wasn't capturing that into to memory. Um, so one uh, study um, financed by the National Institutes of Health showed that you know, somebody who takes a sleeping pill generally tends to fall asleep about 10 minutes faster than somebody who doesn't and stays asleep about 10 minutes, 12 minutes longer. Uh, so it's really not that much different than simply a placebo effect. Um, you know, your brain... Any, taking anything will make you feel like you're sleeping better, even if it's a sugar pill. Um, and then if you can't remember what was happening, then of course you didn't think you're sleeping better. 
I mean, there's no evidence that it improves your sleep quality either. Um, but what happens is a lot of people get into the cycle. You know, they know so little about sleep. They think, you know, they, they realize they have insomnia. They don't know how to, to break the cycle, so they think, okay, I'm going to take a sleeping pill. This helps. Um, and, you know, researchers now know that insomnia is almost like an ironic mental condition. You want sleep so badly that you can't get it. So you get in your own way, basically. So now they think that uh, cognitive behavioral therapy is actually a much better route for insomnia because that shows, research has shown that over the long term, that really does help you break insomnia. You know, if you're just taking sleeping pills, as soon as your prescription runs out, your insomnia comes back. But if you change your almost relationship to sleep and how you, what you expect from it and how you put yourself to sleep each night, then you can really move beyond it. So what are some tips as one of gajillions of insomnia sufferers? What can yeah. we do? Uh, one big thing is watch exposure to, to artificial light. Um, that's something that you know, people really do have stay in bright rooms really late in the night or you know, have the iPad really close to their face late at night and then think that the bro- their body is basically like it has an on-off switch. As soon as your head hits the pillow, you're supposed to fall asleep. Um, so it's almost we, we hype ourselves up too much about sleep. You know, this is kind of almost ironic coming from somebody who just wrote a book about how important sleep is. But, yeah, sleep is important, but it's not so important that you should drive yourself crazy. Um, so that's the other thing is realizing that your body has all these different rhythms just naturally. Um, you know, you fall asleep, you get tired 2.30 in the afternoon or 3 in the afternoon, not because you ate a big lunch or, or anything else. It's because that's just a natural dip in your, your body's rhythms. That's, you know, in Latin American countries, that's when the siesta is. It's, just an, it's a natural kind of sleep. Um, so it's the same thing. Sometimes, you know, there's different forms of insomnia. Some people, they try to lie, lie down, and then they stare at the ceiling for two hours and can't fall asleep. Other people, they fall asleep quickly, and then they wake up, and then they, that's when they freak themselves out. Um, so I think you realize then that, you know, we have this natural rhythm that we're supposed to wake up in the middle of the night. Um, kind of takes away some of the sleep anxiety and takes away that kind of drive that can make you, you become an insomnia. Um, then there's other things, just the kind of behavioral techniques, and that that takes you know the therapy route more so. But that's doing things like finding ways to challenge um, any thoughts or or other ideas that that might get in your way of of sleep. You know, anxiety um, is a big one. David's book has many more fascinating stories on sleep, including the military's evolving perspective on its crucialness, and the emerging legal field of defending people who commit crimes while unconscious. Again, the book is called Dreamland, Adventures in the Strange Science of Sleep. Now let's take a closer look at dreams. Most of us have probably wondered what they mean. Now science is starting to answer that question. First up, we have Matthew Wilson, professor of neuroscience at MIT, who studies dreams in rats. So what I do is uh, study memory in rodents. My question is, how is memory formed? How is it used? And uh, just a little backstory. In my studies of memory, uh, I began doing my postdoctoral work by recording brain activity here in this structure, the hippocampus. Hippocampus structure critical for memory of events. If you're going to remember this event any time in the next hour or two or days or weeks following, uh, you're going to have to have functional hippocampus. So the hippocampus is required to encode experience. So in studying this, by implanting electrodes implanting very fine microwire electrodes into the brains of rats. It's a fraction of a human hair. We put these things into the brain where the tips of these insulated wires can record discharges of single cells. So we're listening to the activity of lots of uh, individual brain cells. 
And so I was doing this experiment. I had the rats running around in a maze. I'm listening to the activity of these brain cells. One thing that's uh, uh, very compelling about these brain cells in the hippocampus is that they, they fire in response to spatial location. Different locations, you get different patterns of activity. So you can literally tell where the animal is just by looking at the pattern of brain activity. So as you hear this rat running around in space, you can, you're listening to brain activity. And then I took the rat off and put it in a little box and it went to sleep, and the experiment was over as far as I was concerned. I, I was recording memory formation. And so I went about doing, uh, you know, transferring the data, analyzing the data, but I left on this audio monitor. So we listen in to brain activity, pipe it into an amplifier, it's, you know, so we can hear what the brain sounds like. I just leave the audio monitor on. And as I'm working, suddenly I hear this brain activity that sounds very much like the animal is up and running around. It's a very characteristic pattern of activity. I'll try to, I'll try to emulate it when, uh, when it comes up. Uh, it's this rhythmic activity, not unlike the alpha rhythm. It's a theta rhythm. It's a 10 hertz rhythm. It sounds kind of like this. Alpha is a little bit faster. So I hear this rhythm, and brain activity sounds like the animal is running around. I turn around, and the animal is asleep. I say, that's curious. Brain sounds like it's awake. The animal is actually asleep. So when I went back and analyzed the data, what I found was these patterns of activity that are produced when the animals move in space are replayed or repeated during periods of sleep. And analyzing sleep in rodents, you find they have the s essentially the same sleep structure as humans. You can break it down into non-REM sleep, REM sleep. REM sleep is what you think of as dream sleep. But um, uh, what I will describe is dream sleep that occurs during non-REM sleep. Most people think of non-REM sleep uh, as, uh, well, as the other kind of sleep. It's not where you have these uh, kind of extended confabulatory epic dreams that you tend to remember, but most dreaming actually goes on during non-REM sleep. Uh, 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 a, lot of, uh, um, uh, a lot of things that we associate with aberrant sleep and dream activity, like sleepwalking, occurs during non-REM sleep. And so what I'm going to show you is uh, what it looks like in a rat's brain when it sleeps and when it's in this non-REM state. And what you will see is that uh, rats dream of running in mazes, but we can look at both the content and the structure of these dreams. And what's interesting is the structure of the dreams is very characteristic. It comes in the form of uh, uh, short segments that have the uh, potential to be composed in a way, like small building blocks that can be put together into longer s uh, uh, s segments or sequences. So I think of this not unlike kind of editing a movie. Our memories are, are formed with these little, these little sequential elements, and during sleep, they're recomposed to form longer sequences. We can decode the content and visualize what animals are dreaming about, and then we can ask the question, how might we manipulate that content and demonstrate how uh, dream activity actually influences memory and behavior? So rather than think of thinking of dreams as simply a reflection of our experience, we can actually turn that around and think of how our experience and memories are in fact a reflection of dreams, which is the way I tend to think of memory. Memory is actually the product of our reevaluation of experience, in a sense, what we remember is, in fact, the result of dreams rather than the other way around. Uh, as the animal moves, 
we put these little uh, tick marks at the location where the animal was. And so here you can see, for instance, this light blue cell tends to fire when the animal's in this part of the maze. The dark blue cell tends to fire in this part of the maze. Different cells will fire at different locations. And this is the, um, this is the property of, of, sp of uh, spatially specific firing or place-specific firing. And so these cells in rodents are called place cells. Now I'm going to decode this activity. So you can say, uh, let's suppose I was collecting this data and the video went out. We have no idea where the animal actually is, but we still can monitor, we can hear the brain cells that are active. And suppose you were to hear this light blue cell firing. Well, you might guess, what's the most likely location <laughs> that the rat would have to be in order to cause the cell to fire? We say, well, it's probably right here. So we can estimate the location, the likely location of the animal based upon the ongoing activity. We can decode ongoing brain activity. When animals stop, brain activity changes. It changes from a pattern that reflects uh, incoming perceptual input and now starts to reflect activity about the internal states where the animal thinks it might be. It's thinking about other places. When it's moving, it's responding to where it is. When it stops, it's thinking about where it could be. This kind of activity that goes on during when animals just sit quietly like you were sitting here. You sit, you close your eyes, and it induces this, uh, this alpha-like rhythm. Alpha rhythm is something that's normally induced when, you know, in periods of quiet wakefulness, sometimes it's, uh, it's referred to uh, um, as uh, suppressing perceptual input. So alpha suppression is, is a, a property of this rhythm, and that is it uh, kind of switches the brain from responding to the outside world, instead of responding to the outside world, it can respond to this inside world. And this alpha-like state is when we see these, uh, uh, these little reactivated sequences, reactivated memories, which when the animal actually goes to sleep, we can see here, now we're decoding brain activity while the animal is animal's not on the maze anymore. This inset, we're taking the animal out, it's put in a little box, and it's actually gone to sleep. And this is just a very brief segment of activity. It lasts about half a second. And in that half a second, you can see that the estimated, sort of the estimated location of the animal follows a path along this maze. The animal is dreaming very briefly about running on this maze. Uh, now, one interesting property of this is that in this case, this little dream sequence is actually running in reverse. So something about the, uh, the reactivation of memory is that it can uh, both uh, express uh, events and content that are remote from the current, uh, the, the current context. The animals can think about and dream about things that they're not currently experiencing. And they have uh, control, time control. They can run it in forward or in reverse, sort of like a, I think of it like a little video recorder where you can go back run back and forth through your experience. Compose it in some way that might be uh, uh, relevant to your experience. You're trying to figure out not what happened, but perhaps why things have happened. And this type of activity, which again occurs uh, roughly every second or so, is going on throughout the night. In slow wave non-REM sleep, these patterns are repeated about once a second or so. So what you have is 
As you drift off to sleep, your brain will switch into the slow wave mode, content will be reactivated, it will have this particular form where you have these rapid sequences, where the sequences themselves come in these short little chunks that are put together at a frequency which is the alpha frequency. I guess the bottom line is that we can look at these things in rodents and then do the next experiment which is to ask how do these events influence memory and so we recently had a paper where we uh, where we tried to uh, influence this activity can we in a sense program the dream activity by providing sensory cues sensory stimulation during sleep and we were able to do this and that by playing sounds tones during sleep we could uh, influence the dream content of uh, these events now let's switch to human dreams this is Aaron Wamsley, instructor of psychiatry at Harvard's Beth Israel Medical Center. Um, I'm going to continue talking about uh, the relationship between sleep dreams and memory, now moving from looking at uh, these questions in uh, animals to looking at uh, human dreams. So. Uh, What's in a dream? That's the question that I want to pose. And my research uh, approaches this question using the tools of uh, psychology and neuroscience. I, I bet nobody would be surprised if I, I claim to you that we dream about what we experience in our daily lives. We dream about events that happen to us, people, places, things from our, our waking experience. But how do our minds select which of the barrage of experiences during the day will actually become incorporated into dreams? Um, so uh, let me suggest one possible answer to you, uh, to that question. Uh, in our laboratory at Harvard Medical School, we study the effect of sleep on human memory performance. And as it turns out, a very consistent finding in our field has been that if you sleep after you learn something, you're gonna remember that information better when tested on it again later on, relative to if you had just been awake during that retention interval. And, and sleep is beneficial for a variety of different forms of memory. Uh, memorization of verbal material, like this paired associates task here, or the uh, learning to execute a specific uh, motor task, all different forms of memory. Now. Might the actual content of our dream experiences during the night have something to do with this uh, memory function of sleep that we study and that uh, Matt Wilson uh, has also been talking about? And uh, our work suggests that, yes, hu human dreams are, are connected to this memory function of sleep. Uh, we study the effect of uh, waking experience on dreaming by training research subjects in our lab on these very engaging interactive learning tasks, such as the downhill skiing uh, arcade game simulator. Uh, and uh, this type of task has an extraordinarily powerful effect on later dream experience that uh, you, you can't easily get by just showing research participants a movie or some uh, uh, images. Um, when subjects play this particular task, uh, actually uh, more than half of participants who play this game will later, when they spend the night in our laboratory, report multiple dreams about this experience, the specific experience during the night, dreams that are clearly and unambiguously related to the learning task. 
and, and why is an experience like this so effective? Well, we think because, as you saw in the clip here, it's exciting, it's interactive, it's driving a learning experience. Students love it. They're motivated to really perform and improve their performance. They're, they're uh, hooked on it. They're addicted to it, like we all um, often are to video games. Now, what we see is that when subjects first fall asleep in the first few uh, seconds and minutes of sleep after uh, doing this task, uh, they tend to report veridical representations of this learning game, uh, meaning they, they say they were thinking about playing that skiing game. They say they were imagining being back in the game. They imagined the, the skier going down the hill. But moving further into the sleep phase, the uh, nature of these reports changes, becoming more abstracted from the original experience, such as this report here. Blueprints in the snow. I've already made blueprints, like copying them, going into the ones, stepping into the ones that were already stepped in, like following somebody else's steps along um, in the snow. Uh, so what we see is that, again, early in the night, the mind is focused on veridically rehearsing uh, what it learned. And uh, but further into sleep, though, the dream content becomes more indirectly related to the original experience, um, as if connecting that newly learned information with our past experience, uh, with semantic memory, as if the brain is trying to figure out what that learning experience uh, means. So that particular little uh, clip of a dream report about walking in the snow, maybe that's not so related to learning how to get the skiing figure around that particular curve in the arcade game faster. Maybe it's more about refining that person's concept of snow and snowness. How do I understand snow? How do I move through the snow? How do I walk in the snow? Um, so another uh, task that we use in our laboratory uh, is the spatial maze navigation task uh, pictured here uh, in which uh, participants must learn the layout of this complex environment uh, basically by repeatedly having to escape this sort of emotional dungeon-like uh, situation uh, navigating to the maze exit across a series of trials. Um, and again, there are certain features of this task that uh, really cause it to have a powerful effect on participants' dreams. In this case, we actually uh, inform subjects they're going to be paid based upon their performance. So this, there's actually a money counter counting down in the middle of the screen. So you're actually, money is slipping through your fingers the longer it takes you to escape this, uh, uh, this environment. Um, and so uh, uh, with this task, we again see that participants uh, very frequently will incorporate this learning experience into their actual uh, dream content during uh, all times of night and all sleep stages. And actually, interestingly, uh, you know, this is maybe a little bit of an atypical uh, presentation on dreaming because Matt Wilson is also talking about working exclusively with non-REM sleep there. Uh, and most of our work also focuses on dreaming during non-rapid eye movement sleep. So if you didn't know already, now you know we dream in non-REM sleep. Um, so the incorporation of these learning experiences happens in all stages of sleep. Here's an example from uh, one non-REM sleep dream and one REM sleep dream. Uh, one subject says, I was standing in the middle of a maze, uh, waiting for my friend to find me. 
waiting, waiting. She just kept going around calling my name. Uh, another participant, this one is from REM sleep, says, uh, I was in the stadium. It was kind of like a coliseum, but nobody's there except for me and a couple of people. There was like some sort of prize in the middle and we're all trying to get it. I think similar to the maze. We had to get it as fast as we could to get the most money. Um, you know, so these are dreams that were uh, agreed upon by Raiders Blind to Condition to be uh, definitely related to the learning task. But much more interestingly and more importantly to me is that what we see with this maze learning task is that the participants who perform the task and then dream about it do better on the maze when tested again the next day. Um, so. Uh, for example, from uh, one of our recent studies, uh, participants who do the maze and then don't remember any dream content related to that learning task, uh, they, uh, their amount of improvement is, is pretty negligible uh, across the, the sleep period, uh, which is what we typically see with a task like this, is that performance across sleep is going to be maintained at about uh, its original level, uh, whereas if you were awake during that interval, you would have actually gotten worse. Um, but then those subjects who sleep and dream about the task do much better after sleep. Um, so what we hypothesize is that, uh, you know, as recent experiences are perhaps uh, reactivated in the sleeping brain, uh, analogous to, you know, what Matt Wilson has shown in animals, um, that this not only leads to improved performance the next day, uh, but also biases ongoing dream content to reflect recent learning experiences. So in essence, our, our hypothesis is that dreams are at least in part a reflection of the processing of, of memory in the sleeping brain. That's it for this installment of the Science in the City podcast. For more, check out scienceinthecity.org and please feel free to email us anytime at scienceinthecity at nyas.org. Thanks for listening.